Hello and welcome to a special instalment of The Midpoint. Today I'm dedicating this entire episode to a fact of all of our lives, ageing. But not the superficial things like wrinkles and grey hairs. Instead, I'm going to be exploring the science of ageing and I'm enlisting the help of a true expert, award-winning physician, researcher and now best-selling author, Professor Rose-Anne Kenny. Professor Kenny has been head of the Academic Department of Medical Gerontology at Trinity College Dublin since 2006. She's also the director of Mercer's Institute for Successful Ageing and the founding principal investigator of the Irish Longitudinal Study on Ageing. More importantly, Rose has taken on all that she's learned from her pioneering scientific research and distilled it into a book called Age Proof, The New Science of Living a Longer and Healthier Life. And the book claims that 80% of our ageing biology is within our control. So I had to find out more and I'm delighted to welcome Professor Rose Ann Kenny to the midpoint. Thank you so much Thank for coming you. on. I absolutely devoured your book in about a day and a half and I was on a, a bit of a jolly to Dublin, ironically, at the time. So it felt kind of like it was it was meant to be. I'm walking past Trinity and things like that, having just read chapters of it. But tell me why you decided to devote your academic life to this subject in particular. Oh, well, I actually did most of my junior doctor training, all of it, uh, uh, in fact, in the UK, in London, in a hospital that was called the Hammersmith at the time, now now Imperial. And uh, I just loved older patients. And it, it was evident when I was training multiple years ago that lots of things were being attributed to aging. Oh, it's your age. Oh, it's their age. We can't do anything about it. It was clear there was very little research in this area. And, and I just was, I loved that patient group and was excited by the fact that there's so much virgin research territory to be explored. That was why. Yeah, and it just seems to be exploding this whole area, doesn't it? You know, it was a few mm. years ago that I first heard the word. I'm not particularly scientific, I'll confess. It was all humanities for me at A-level and beyond. So I left biology behind at GCSE. But the word telomere, for example, suddenly became mm. a word I, I found creeping into the vernacular, you know, and I'd read an article about it. And it feels like people are really interested in this. So to make the most uh, of your time with us today, let's kind of go into some of the, some of the areas that I found particularly interesting epigenetics. Let's mm. discuss that. Mm. What is it and how does it affect longevity? So epigenetics is the dynamic piece of our DNA. We have fixed DNA about 20 to 25,000 genes. And then on our DNA, we have these movable little groups which can move in and out of the DNA, the strands of DNA. And they, in fact, are the pieces that keep changing in our DNA and instructing the cells dynamically on how to either produce energy, mostly through glucose in the mitochondria, or to get rid of the toxic byproducts that occur because of that energy production. So we now know that those epigenetic clocks can be used to measure biological aging quite accurately, not absolutely accurately, but quite accurately. That's why they're generating so much interest now. You can actually count the normal functioning epigenetic groups, if you like, the methyl groups on DNA. And that is an indication of your biological age, not your chronological age, not the number of candles on your birthday cake. So that's why we're hearing more about epigenetics, because you read people saying their biological age was 48 and they were actually 62. What does that mean? How can, put it in layman's terms for us, how somebody okay. can, first of all, acquire that information. And can anybody 
get that information? Is this a blood test or what do they have to do? So, yes, you can. There are sites which are commercial sites to measure your biological aging. To be honest, the epigenetic aging and epigenetic clocks are yet not yet accurate enough to specifically measure your biological aging, but they're very much getting there. And we do see a big spread in epigenetic aging. So if someone has number of different diseases like diabetes and heart disease and high blood pressure, we know from big epidemiological studies, that that person is more likely probably to succumb earlier, to die earlier, or not to have a, you know, a fulfilled, healthy lifespan as someone who doesn't have any of those Mm -hmm. disease states. And the epigenetic clocks actually map nicely with what we already know with respect to that. But they don't give the precision that we're interested in as individuals. In other words, I can't tell you you've 10 years more to live or 40, (laughs) I hope, Gabby. I'm sure. (laughs) Um, So so we're not at that level of accuracy, but they are getting more accurate. When we started doing work, first of all, on measuring these clocks, measuring these sites, there were about four or five clocks that you could use. And the only thing that discriminates the different clocks really are the number of sites that are being measured. So as the science evolved, we were able to measure more and more sites. And the more sites you can measure, the more accurate your estimate is going to be. But now there are 20 something clocks. And that's, I'm only talking about in a five, six year span. And actually, we're now developing clocks to measure the the biological aging, the epigenetic aging of different tissues. Like where there's, an, there's a muscle clock, mm-hmm. there's a bone clock, wow. there's a heart clock. So that's where this whole science is going. It's moving very quickly. I don't think at the moment, I wouldn't have my uh, clock um, aging done at the moment because I don't think it would tell me anything more than knowing my blood pressure, my blood glucose, etc. Cholesterol would tell me. But there, it's a fast moving science and it's really promising. And tell us a little bit about the DAF2 gene, because what I got from the early part of your book was that this, this is quite important. And, and I wondered how important it's going to be in the future. Are we going to get to a stage where babies are going to be given their full genetic breakdown and kind of told where they can hack into faulty genes, for example? So so DAF2 is important and interesting because it's one of the first ones we've actually clearly identified as being associated with biological aging. But there will be more. Um, and we don't know yet. We have no idea of the full spectrum of age-related genes as yet. So it is not appropriate to do a genetic profiling at all on fetuses at the moment for longevity. Will it go there? I think it could well go in that direction. I mean, I, I think it would be definitely in my So this book, is a gene. This is a gene. Yeah, I will. Yeah, it's a gene. Yeah. What I'm saying is, will we go where we can actually modify the gene in utero or maybe if you've dysfunction of the DAF gene, that one would abort that fetus, etc. I would hope that, that we wouldn't get there. But we will find other genes and there are other genes coming online. And there's a BMAL gene, for example, which we know is involved in sleep patterns and in gut microbiome patterns, uh, etc. So and they're all very important for influencing aging. So it isn't that there's a specific gene which is going to dictate the aging process. There are there a loads, number of different right. genes 
and we don't know which one yet is the important one. The genes are the fixed bit, though. The things that we can do something about are the epigenetics, and the factors that influence the epigenetics are the what I like to call the do's. I hate I, I hate if when people approach me anyway and say, "Don't do this, don't <laughs> do that, don't do yeah." But but there's loads of do's mm -hmm. that we can use to influence the epigenetics. So when people talk about hacking into their genetic profile, if you did do a profile of your genes mm. and you found out, I don't know what the correct terminology is, but your DAF2 gene perhaps wasn't yeah. as, as good. How do you describe it? As, as yeah. Functioning, uh, as yeah. Fun functioning yeah. as well, yeah. however you yeah. determine yeah. that. Are we going to be able to change things in our lifestyles from a very early age so that we can negate the negativity of those so what we will be able to do is modify the factors that are important around that gene and the epigenetic factors associated with that gene. We will be able to modify those either by drugs, most likely by drugs, or lifestyle behavior changes, obviously, but mostly by drugs. It's interesting with respect to epigenetics that a lot of the embedding of something like socioeconomic class, which we know has a huge effect on epigenetics, it, it seems to occur in the first few years of life, really? the heavy embedding. That's when most of the rapid change in epigenetics occurs. And then it sort of plateaus out a bit. So tell um, me, so let's is, go back on that, because I was yeah. thinking in my head, epigenetics means that you know later on you can start to eat better. But actually, if your first few years of life have got these contraindicators that mean that you're you're not doing the right thing that at that point it could be then too late to to kind of change behaviors no, it's never too late. And that's the good thing because the, dyna the dynamics can change very all throughout our lives. Actually, we can make changes. But most of the activity in those epigenetic sites is, in fact, in the first few years of life. It's the very same, actually, with the microbiome. Most of the changes in the gut microbiome occur within the first three, four, five years of life. So those early years are really, really important. And some of our group here are looking at socioeconomic pressures, class differences, and the influence on epigenetics. So what are we talking and about uh, that, that young children could mm. potentially be missing out on? Or are they not getting? What, what is it? So stress is a big issue. So stress in a household and an environment of stress is one factor. Food, good food is another factor. Stimulation seems to be an important factor. Variety wow. so that in a can, child's that can life. Affect Continuing. The genetic. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, epigenetics. Yeah, the yeah. epigenetics, yeah. And microbiome quality actually. Then longer term, if we're looking at the first couple of decades of life, education is hugely important. It's a really good marker, actually, of all, all of that we're talking about, level of education. It seems to modify any of the negative effects of very early on in childhood, generally speaking, so that you can, mobility, if you, if you move from a lower socioeconomic class to a higher socioeconomic class, a lot of these changes are attenuated, which means they're not as marked mm -hmm. in adults who stay in the same socioeconomic class compared to those who, who have mobility and 
who change socioeconomic class. But so all I'm saying is that a lot of this embedding occurs very early on. So although we're talking about aging, in fact, a number of the findings are really pertinent to early life and should be applied to early life. And because of the longitudinal study, the way we designed the study, we're repeatedly assessing with biological markers and other socioeconomic markers. We're very interested in those because none of this occurs on its own. None of these biological changes are, are just just due to a cell change. They're due to a cell change in the context of our social and economic environments. So what we do is we repeatedly test health, social and economic status of the same people, 9,000 odd, every two years prospectively. But we also ask questions about childhood, childhood illnesses, childhood experiences, childhood exposures. And we try and capture the life course we try and capture the life of the individual before we started testing them at, say, age 50, um, so that we can actually look retrospectively and prospectively at the factors influencing that individual's life. Is your gut feeling that, that this could be one of the biggest things come out of the study that actually before perhaps was not acknowledged that those early years, we know that early years are important in terms of social development and in terms of your educational opportunities, but to talk about those early years in relation to your longevity and the and your epigenetics, I don't think that's something that would be widely uh, assumed or that people would have really any any kind of idea about. No, but if you reflect on it, I think Gabby, you'll find it's intuitive. Mm, you know, of course, you, 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 when you, you say you, it, you, you can. Yeah, yeah, you think, yeah, that makes complete sense to me, and I've actually. I think you'll find you've seen it, you mm -hmm. know, you mm -hmm. think, yeah, I recognize that. I know that it's just a matter of having the science identify it. I think it's absolutely one of the most important things. Of course, our challenge is in getting that message out there, but also getting the message to policymakers, because what this is about is engaging policy to ensure that childhood is frankly, overall, a holistic, good experience for children. And we know that's not happening across the UK or even in Ireland and actually, today. Like so many of these policies, it's going to cost more at the back end, isn't it? When you've got to look after an aging ill population, if you don't look after them at the very beginning. Yep. That's the problem. Because for whatever reason, policymaking is very short-sighted. And it's about the now. But this comes full circle to your first questions to me, why I did geriatric medicine um, as a clinical career and gerontology as a researcher. It, it isn't about that static period, which was the lens at the time. You know, old people, I'd get into taxis and the taxi driver would say, what you do? And I'd say, I'm a geriatrician. I look after older people. And he said, oh, God, love you. Aren't you great? <laughs> <laughs> but, but the point is that now that lens into a certain age cohort actually is a holistic lens throughout the life course, throughout the lifespan. That's the point. And the research learnings apply throughout the lifespan, not just one point in age. Having said that, it's really important that people understand that we can modify those cellular changes at any stage in life. The impact just isn't as big. Earlier you get in there, the better, but it's never too late. Okay, let's talk about some of those things then that people will be listening and thinking, okay, what can I do to help myself now? And a lot of our audience are already in the midlife. They, they may well be living quite healthy lives right now, but everybody wants the fix, don't they? They want to know the stuff they should be doing. How bad, for example, is smoking? 
It's, it's, it's one of the worst, okay? I mean, there's no question about that. When we're looking at what we call multiple regression analysis, so that's you're looking at a certain outcome, say mortality, say brain health, Alzheimer's disease, say heart attacks, heart disease, say cancers, and you throw everything in the mix to say, okay, what's the independent association between smoking and that particular outcome. Consistently, it comes out one of the strongest negative impacting factors. In some cases responsible for cardiovascular disease, that means stroke, kidney, cardiovascular disease, heart failure, all that, 40% minimum it's responsible for, pastry smoking. Now, if you give up smoking, because again, it's a, it's a do, not a don't. If you give up smoking, and you're five years after giving up smoking, then the line starts to really look more more positive. But it never fully leaves your system after a number of years of pack years. But then we always have those anecdotes. People always, and I think one of the questions later, and I've got them in my family. On one side of my family, my mum's side, I've got the centurions, I call them. Four or five of them live to 100. Mm. Then on the other mm. side, my dad's side, his parents lived into their 80s, but they were 40 a day smokers. Mm. And they uh. didn't have good diets and I mean, and they didn't, you know, they worked in no, a very so, stressful, you know, five jobs each, working men's clubs, mm. you know. So you kind of go, what? <laughs> yeah. So that's your genes. And we all know those. And I mean, the Japanese carry two particular genes, which certainly contribute to their longevity. So that's your genes. We don't know what specifically the good genes are yet for drinking and smoking. Um, that they had them. Uh, they are. They're there. No, well, they must be there. Well, they were drinkers they as must well. Be there. So they must have had these good oh, genes. Oh, they were. Yes. Well, I mean, well, uh, well, so those genes are there and they have them, but there's no, absolutely no guarantee that you do. No. Right. So I shouldn't take no. it for granted. No, no. Their genes will contribute to about 20% of your longevity. But actually, if you make it to 80 then the genetic contribution ratio is different and, and your genes probably contribute going forward to about 40% of continued longevity. So so longer livers, not, I don't mean the liver in yeah. your body, I mean people who live longer, <laughs> yeah. um, they, there are certain genes so your, associated with So your genes will only get you so far mm. and then you're so... so Perhaps they should have lived to 100, for example, with their longevity genes. But what they were doing to themselves, smoking and drinking wise, meant that they cut maybe 20 years off their lives. Yeah, but they still did very well. They did very well. Then. Yeah, they did because very well. Because if you look back, I mean, because we're, we're, we're living longer by about 2.5 years every 10 years. So a good life expectancy, I don't know, then would have been 75 mm, or whatever. Mm. You know, so if they lived longer, then they would, they still have longevity genes, I would say, which are very positive. You may have them, but you may not. So right, you can't no, depend I'm on it. Not going to take it for granted at all. Uh, <laughs> but there are areas of the world, the blue zones, the areas where people mm. live longer that you talk about in the book. Mm. And it's not so much genetics there, is it, as other factors that come into play? No, it's not genetics, because if you think about where the blue zones are, they're in five very disparate areas around the world. Loma Linda in California, Nicoya, Costa Rica, Okinawa, Japan, Sardinia, and Icaria in Greece. So, you know, they're, they're, they're well separated mm, globally, mm. so they don't have the same Cozy. genetic mm. trees, very unlikely. Um, and they, do, they don't appear to have from the research. What they all do share, or there are a few features they do share, which have been very valuable in helping us to understand understand the environment what we call the environmental contributors to longevity and they're all fun and they're all great and this is the bit I love about the science first of all they're all near the sea mm. 
and they're all pretty much on heights. That's the first thing. Okay, so they're living at altitude. They're living at altitude. Uh, The altitudes vary. They're all at altitude, but the altitudes vary. Secondly or thirdly, um, they have, and this is the strongest component that appears to be contributing to longevity or contributed to longevity in the blue zones, incredible social networks, social engagement, social activities and variety in that context. That, such that there was one researcher who spent time in Sardinia studying this, social scientist, and she went into the room of a 102-year-old man into the kitchen and she sat there um, and he he's got, he was up and he dressed and down and three generations were living in the house and the kitchen was sort of fronting onto the, onto the when I say main road, it's one of those small little Sardinian roads with how, tall houses each end. And so she sat down to interview him. She didn't get a word in edgeways almost all day because so m- everybody who was passing popped in to say hello to him. And then the other three generations were moving up and down, popping in and out to the kitchen, chatting to him all the time. She just, she hadn't a moment. And it really occurred to her, wow, I mean, this is like a railway station. And, and, and this person is constantly being stimulated by different people, different conversations, different reflections, peppered by meals. <laughs> so she, she just said it was, it was a real eye opener for her. And I think that that is one of the secrets of the Blue Zones. All that those, seems to be all a common. The, all the Blue Zones have that in common. They all have that shared social connect, social engagement, social connectedness and variety also. Variety in their, in whatever is stimulating them. So, of course, we don't all, unfortunately, live on a small cobbled street in Sardinia. So we need to think of creative ways that we can actually shape our lives with those sort of fun do's that work at a biological level. That's the interesting thing. These people have slower biological aging. So what, some of the do's that we know about are having a purpose in our lives, creativity, um, adds that those same same hormonal inflammatory biological changes that that you see by um, social engagement, laughter, lots of laughter. Um, laughter is really really good for us, you know. And people say laughter is the best medicine. That it's fantastic that 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 well known expression has now translated into true science at a biological level, isn't it? Um, religion for some, but mm-hmm. but it's not very clear. Is that more to do with the community? I was just about to say that it's not very clear whether, well, it could be community or meditation and mm-hmm. de-stressing. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there, there are co- a couple of elements that we know are very good for us, you know, and that's the other big thing, stress. Stress is really bad. Stress is bad for uh, the uh, in- inflammation. All of the stress hormones, which which are released, are really bad for impacting, obviously, on sleep, but but also on energy production and bad for mitochondria, bad for mood. All all of that is is really bad for our system. So anything which lowers adrenaline or cortisol is really good for our system. And then sharing. They, they in Sardinia, people meet once a day for a for a kind of chat session, usually in the afternoon, usually frankly with a glass of wine, um, and that just problem sharing is really really good. And there are lots of experiments at, at you know from from students, university student groups right through to older age groups to show that a problem shared really is a problem halved in terms of biological impacts. So so there were some of the things, of course, and then. Exercise. Exercise is very important to to the blue zones, and we we know that. But we're inclined to, 
um, well, you and I are sitting down now having a, a Zoom call, whereas in the blue zones, there'd be none of that. But but there's no fixed programmed exercise either. It, it's all part of their day. So I saw a great, vi- I mentioned this in the book, a video of a woman late in her 90s chopping wood that one of the original scientists who had studied the blue zones had, had taken. And she did that every day of her adult life. You know, you can imagine that exercise at 90 something. But she wouldn't um, see that as exercise. She's not putting on her leggings and her lycra, the point. is she? It, it's that's the point mm. she I'd say she'd be arrested where she was <laughs> if she did but she so it's embedded in their lives you know they walk to mm. do their shopping they housework you know mm-hmm. so everything that's done is it, there is physical purpose activity with as well. everything purpose to yeah. the physical activity purpose to the physical well that's a really good point now Gabby because people say to me I've, I'm retired I can't find purpose there is no purpose in my life and I think well we can create purpose you have to sometimes be creative about creating purpose absolutely but the, but there's never a never and the, the blue zones actually have, have specific names Ikagia the Okinawans call it Plan de Vide is what the Nicoyans call it so a purpose for their day and you're right even thinking okay today I've got to clean the windows do the ironing whatever that's that's you're, you're creating a purpose for yourself and for your day so it is possible to create purpose my um one of the relatives i've mentioned lived to 105 my uncle eddie and it was only in any kind of care till about 104 he lived at home on his own in scarborough by the sea wow. as did his two siblings who lived to be 100 by the sea so there you go there's a blue zone developing here yeah and uh-huh. um just six months before he died he was still doing his recycling which I found incredible because not only was he walking to the recycling bins to drop his bottles off, um, and they weren't alcohol, by the way, by this point, I don't think he was enjoying any alcohol, but he was thinking about the next generation because to recycle, you've got to be bothered about the planet, haven't you? You know, and you're not being selfish. And and I just, his whole attitude was that giving back as well, which I, I found incredible. I mean, he didn't, the thing that is common between the three of them, actually, the siblings who lived to be 100 in Scarborough, none of them had kids, which I always um, wonder how much stress kids had into your life and the fact yeah. that they, maybe that's an extra five years that they got from not having kids. Who knows? Well, yeah, <laughs> that wouldn't be more than that, but there is. And, you know, all the the famous study is the nuns study of 678 yes. nuns in, in, in the States. Um, an order who uh, longevity in that in that case obviously was associated also with not, <laughs> not having, having kids, kids. <laughs> and also having a very a very clear rhythm to mm. to life seems to seems to be an issue. But with your uncle Eddie, what struck me when you were describing that was his attitude, and definitely attitude makes a difference. And and it's been shown, for example, that if you feel younger than your years, and I bet he did, I bet he never said, oh God, I feel 104. <laughs> I know he didn't because because of what you've described. But if you, if you have a positive attitude and don't feel your chronological age, and we've asked that question, we've done aging perception work in the longitudinal study, people who perceive themselves to be longer actually seem to have a slower pace of aging. They they age more slowly. Their gait speed 
doesn't deteriorate at the same speed. Their cognition, cognitive function, memory, planning, ability to concentrate, you know, any deterioration in those factors is much slower if they started with a positive attitude at the beginning of the study, independent of all of the other things we can check. I love that. I love the fact that being positive actually makes a difference. And I know you, you, you'll have seen, I mentioned in the book that particularly during COVID, there was an awful lot of negative language around aging. And it's really hard to remain positive if the media is telling you that, you know, over 50, you are invisible or, or sending subliminal messages that that's the implication, that, that that seems to be the implication. I believe that is changing a lot. I believe media attitude is changing. I'm sure some of it is because the number of people reaching certain ages now because of the demographic change is more. And of course, there's volume in numbers. I think it will change because of demography. The social and the, the community and because, of course, you're going to have young people in those, that community as well who are going to interact with those older people, which I think is really important, isn't it? I think intermingling of the generations comes through in the book as well. You talk about that, not just being 80 and only hanging out with 80 year olds, clearly in the blue zones. That's not the case. Yeah, no. So the intergenerational transfers is really important. Transfers in wisdom, knowledge and, and engagement and fun. Very important. We're not good at it on these islands. Uh, if you look at the, the data, most of our friends are our peer group. I'm really lucky because I work with a younger research group who keep me on my toes. But it's wonderful to be engaging with young students, actually, undergraduates and with, with postgraduates who are younger. Th that does make a difference. It's incredibly refreshing. And I think we should make more of an effort to do that, to have friends who are younger and older than mm. you are. You mm -hmm. know, age shouldn't be a, a factor. And there's just so much to be gained from from all of that. And I think we've we lose out in not doing that. And it makes first of all, it adds to the variety and variety. You know, if I was asked to what's a caption, what's it? What's a quick conclusion from your book that somebody can take from it? I would say variety on your plate and variety in your life. The, the reason I think the book is um, so brilliant is because you you do the science in it. You know, you don't just say, um, everybody, go and go and mingle, have a good time. Don't, you know, don't be stressed. This is going to, you do the science. And I think people need that, don't they? They need to know that there's there's a kind of scientific kind of a backbone to all of this. But then also the stuff you talk about that is so positive, I think, that people can adopt into their lives is not expensive. You know, it's not, you're not saying to people, you have to spend thousands of pounds a year doing this. And because there's going to be a lot of businesses that develop over the next few years, which try and sell people all these things to, to live longer lives. And so much of it is simple. And one of those things, which I'm a huge fan of, is cold water. So for me, because my husband's always asking me why it works, and I say, I don't know, I just do it. Can you tell me the science of cold water? <laughs> Great. I'm delighted you do it. I do it when I can. I love it. So the science of cold water, it's a, it's a biological process called hormesis. And actually, I think that's another word, like telomeres that's come into mm -hmm. our, our parlance now. Um, and basically what it is, it's kind of a shock to the system. It almost triggers a fight or flight response, which is a sympathetic autonomic nervous system response. Now, that's a really we've evolved to have that response because that's that protects us when we were animals. And now as humans, it's our protective response, our vigilant response. And it's it's a it's a very important response in our evolution. It, we're, it's inclined to be dormant now, a little bit more so 
unless we get under chronic stress, like worried about money or something, and then it's, it's triggered again. That's not good because it's constantly triggered and it becomes chronic. But the acute hit of the fight or flight, the acute noradrenaline buzz, the acute increase in sympathetic activity, that's really good for us. And that almost, if you, if you like, wakens hibernating components in our cells and in our physiology, which we've evolved to have and to need. And it's just good for them to be kind of reminded they're there. Again, it's very good for our system. And if you think how we have evolved in terms of uh, hunter-gatherers, you know, we were in caves and then in cold water fishing um, and trying to keep warm, but tolerating very cold weather if we if we had to when hunting, etc. So we're used to pretty much extremes in temperature. We know that temperature, uh, lower temperatures are really good for uh, as anti-inflammatory. So it would appear that below 19 degrees, for example, in a house decreases your inflammatory responses. And that's the inflammatory responses kind of go hand in glove with that chronic stress response we were talking about at a cell level. Now that's cold water. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's your cold shower in the morning. That gives you a hit. It's really mm-hmm. good. Or cold water swimming. Well, now I'm coming on to the cold water swimming. That is a whole lot of additional benefits. Okay. Because you're getting your exercise. Mm -hmm. And usually people don't do it on their own. So there's a fantastic social engagement with the whole thing. And it's a certain, you know, everybody's, it's, it's a real team feel about it because we're all in this together and it's, you know, it's not pleasant, but we'll feel great when we come out, etc. So there's, there's a whole lot of additional components, I think, to cold water swimming, which you don't get with the shower. Plus, you're obviously exposed for longer mm. to the cold hit. And uh, so tell me why, when I come out of the, the lake or wherever I've swum, why do I feel so positive for the you know for the rest of the day and maybe days after what's going on inside my sympathetic nervous system whatever it is that's making me feel so like I can tackle anything so it it causes release of really good hormones and neurotransmitters including the endorphins which you're aware of but BDNF is the really big one this new one we know an awful lot more of it's a very positive neurotransmitter very good for connecting cells, neuron cells, brain cells, particularly in the hippocampus, that's our memory Mm -hmm, center. mm -hmm. So your memory is better because of that. Also, you'll find you're not as chronically fatigued because it's very good for insulin. This general hormonal release is really good for insulin. So you're not going to get abnormal toxic insulin sensitivity changes. It's it's really good for insulin. Therefore, it's good for managing glucose and managing glycogen and excessive glycogen storage, you'll know in the liver or in muscle or in fat is what is toxic to the system, leads to diabetes and heart disease, but also leads to a chronic fatigue state. So really good for the brain because of the neural the sympathetic and the hormonal and neurohormonal or neurotransmitter releases uh, generally. So that that's why you feel so good. And and you're right. The 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 feeling lasts. Mm. Yeah, and it can it can just kind of feel it for a few days even. But the day itself, you know, it is it is like nothing else in terms. Can of I ask you? Do you find it's do it helps your sleep? 
Yeah, I'm I'm quite good with sleep, but I guess my sleep is really good at the moment and I've been swimming a lot more in the last few months and it definitely does help sleep. The quality, what hasn't helped sleep is having a brand new puppy as a 50th birthday present uh, in the last, so I let, this week's not not, not a usual week. Um, not used, it's like having a baby back in the house, you know, yeah, crying yeah, in the yeah. night, but that's yeah. also delivering a whole lot of other hormonal uh, yes. boosts, having, you know, yes, seeing the lots love. Lots of oxy, yeah, oxytocin the, <laughs> there. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Now in the book, you talk about about uh, Jean-Louis, I think it's Calmont, is it? The French yeah. woman who, 122, 123. Yeah. So she was at the time the, the oldest woman on the planet, wasn't she? She was. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Probably that we have accurate records for probably 123? still the longest lived. Yes. Right. Person. Yeah. Which, okay. So what does that, what does that say to us? Well, first of all, that's remarkable. Mm hmm. And maybe if your uncle hadn't smoked, he'd be there too. Oh, no, he Eddie. wasn't a smoker, Eddie. Was, oh, he wasn't was a smoker. The other side okay, here, let's yeah. not do him an injustice. <laughs> no. So the amazing thing about that is, first of all, we know we can live to 123. That's the first thing. Okay. And the projections are that we will continue to live longer by 2.5 years every decade. Humanity will. So that's the projections. Secondly, I think if you reflect on her lifestyle, which is why I've spent a bit of time on it, she actually encapsulates everything we're kind of talking about. She didn't have a whole lot of stress, financial stress in her life. That that would be my take on it. She was very active from get-go, you know, fencing, walking, skiing, very active. So she was always. from quite an affluent background, was she? And married well. But the early years I'm interested in as well. I wonder what her... Her early uh, years were as well. No, right, no, okay. she so came she had from, from good that diet. middle class. French right. family so she would have had and all of that she married well <laughs> she married well and and even in her very older latter years when she did eventually go into a nursing home um she she had a rhythm to her life even then she got up at 6 a.m in the morning she would wash herself with a flannel cloth with oil and soap you know, w went around and saw all of the other residents chatting with them, telling them what was going on in the world. She did crosswords until she got bilateral wow. cataracts and wasn't able to read them anymore, etc. So her whole day was rhythm. And she did have a little glass of port then in the evening. Mm -hmm. And the she did have a, a, a cigarette every did she? evening. So did she? she must have had shared genes with, with <laughs> others. She? And she did. And uh, yeah, went to bed. In her last year, all of her blood markers, when, when they took her bloods, they were all completely normal. Wow. There was nothing abnormal. So I think she exemplified everything we know works. And mm -hmm. she must have had a little bit of help as well from... Genes. And she wanted to be around still, didn't she? She she, she was incredibly interested in what was going on in the world around her. She she was interested in the news. That's what she would share news items mm. with the other residents, <laughs> which I which I loved. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. Now, I'm going to move on to the questions that have come in from the midpointers. Mm -hmm. um, Amy uh, Purewall says, uh, what can I do today at 52 to make sure I've got an active lifestyle at 72? I'm saying, Amy, come on, push beyond 72 for your active lifestyle. Yeah. Uh, what If you were going to kind of hack into people's lives in their early 50s, what would you say? Well, I'd say, first of all, covet and treasure your friends and culture them. 
Amy, definitely. And if you don't have any, you know, do something to create a friend group. The second thing I think is very important is is diet. Diet is very important. And the microbiome diet is very close to the Mediterranean diet. So, you know, there's a lot of dietary fads out there. An awful lot of, you'll get a whole lot of, of, of advice, which is disparate, it appears, in some cases. The easiest thing is remember the Mediterranean diet and stick with that. That one's pretty good. And remember, no sugar. If you think no sugar, you'll go low sugar. Or if you think no salt, you'll go low salt. And if you think no processed foods, and that's really hard, you, go, you know, to have no processed foods is hard. Hard, then then you'll you'll, you'll, you'll have just very low process so that's what I said diet and then exercise is does matter and what I would recommend is do a little bit more with respect to exercise every year after the year of 50 up until which if you adhere to all of this Amy you will do up until you're 92 more every year not less well, every you're year. Not the, even just you're not the first person minutes. to say that and we've um greg white who um you may have heard he's the guy who used to train all the people for comic relief and sport relief challenges he was an olympic um modern pentathlete and became a world record holder for swimming in his 50s in different things and he came on here and said that exactly that do more you think you're slowing down you need to do more physical exercise and you say this in Absolutely. the book as well Yes, I do. Um, and, and, and that comes back to attitude because there's an attitude. I can't, I can't do that at my age. Absolutely. And do a little bit more. Now, what we, what we don't do enough of uh, with respect to people over 50 is resistance exercises. And they're really important. Something I think the statistic I resourced was 7% of people over the age of 75 in the USA are doing resistance exercises. And, you know, in brief, there's two types. There's weights or there's Pilates using your own body weight. I mean, just that that's, it's as simple as that. And it's well worth, well worth putting time into resistance exercise programs because we do lose 1% of muscle after the age of 40, 45 mm. every year. It's much harder um, to keep it, isn't it? It's, it's important to build muscle. And I think it's important to take protein supplements if you're doing muscle building. We associate those behaviors very so often. So you think, just go back to that, because you think, because I would say I've, I, take, I take a lot of protein into my diet, but I do a lot of resistance training. You think perhaps even taking on more protein in terms of a powder would be, because that's another so question that's coming up. So there's one very good. Yeah, there's, well, I, I do. Okay, I do protein. I do resistance training four times a week and I take protein. So that's, I'm persuaded by the science. There was one good study I particularly liked in, in people over the age of 70 who had a thing called sarcopenia, which is an infiltration of muscles, um, and which renders them much lower in strength and mass. Um, and it's very much an age-related abnormality. It's almost ubiquitous as we get older, but the amount of sarcopenia we can modify. And it's with strengthening exercises. The more sarcopenia we accumulate, then what starts to happen in 70s usually or mid 70s, 80s, is we become frail. And we're all familiar with, I think we all have a sense of what we understand by frailty, but we will become frail if we don't do something about uh, slowing down sarcopenia or really aborting it if mm -hmm. possible. And supplements tie into a question from MRSC underscore T. Um, vitamin supplements. What should we take? I take vitamin D. Uh, what uh, else should I take, especially with joint pain? So I guess this person's already experiencing joint pain. We want to prevent that as well. So what would you supplement? So, so um, 
I, I, I was just going to finish there that on the sarcopenia experiment that was done, and it ties in nicely with this this question, the, the study actually introduced protein supplements coupled with vitamin D. And it significantly reduced the pace of sarcopenia. And this was in people over the age of 70 who already had established sarcopenia. So that gives me confidence in protein supplementation. So what supplements? This is a hard question. To be honest, vitamin D is a must. And particularly if you're in Ireland or Scotland or north of England, we just do not get enough of sunlight exposure. And even if you do, you're wearing you're wearing um, um, sunscreen. So so vitamin D is an absolute must In, in the Irish longitudinal study to give you a sense of it in winter and spring, 50% of our population over the age of 60 were deficient in vitamin D. And at the time we were doing quite a bit of work as well on COVID and you were much more likely to get sick from COVID, really sick from COVID if you had low vitamin D. So vitamin D is an easy one, a definite one. Then what else? Well, if you have a good diet, I would additionally supplement it with uh, omega oils. I think there's quite a good evidence around omega oils. There isn't as much actually around vitamin C and vitamin E. And yet over 50% of the intake of vitamin C and vitamin E, for example, in the States is from supplements. So despite the fact that the evidence isn't there, people aren't listening to that. They're still using supplements to supplement those, those vitamins. So if you feel you're not getting enough of those in your diet, then supplement. Now, there's another new group of polyphenols and mTOR inhibitors. The polyphenols, you'll have heard of them like resveratrol and quercetin. These are available in foods, but actually there are supplements and, and they probably are beneficial to the mitochondrial activity, to energy production that we talked about earlier on, and also getting rid of toxins from cells. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I, I take resveratrol and quercetin. And the other two are fecetin, which is a newer agent, which acts on mTOR. Now, mTOR is a protein which is critical for instructing the cell about insulin in the liver, in muscle, and in the brain. And it more and more seems to be playing a really important role in the aging process. And fecetin is an mTOR inhibitor. There's another one which we can't buy over the counter, which we do use as a supplement with cancer patients called rapamycin. And that is looking really, really promising. Well, you think that's going to jump over to the mainstream? I do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Ultimately, but there's some side effects with it. So at the moment that it isn't being prescribed for aging. And are these, are these what people should start taking early in their fifties, do you think, or they should be definitely be taking them in their seventies? We don't know the answer to that yet, but given that the aging process starts so early in life, frankly, I would say the earlier, the better. Right. But definitely vitamin D, definitely omega, very good Mediterranean diet. Try and keep your food intake between eight hours. Try not to snack if possible. So the eight hours, Um, is this this kind of goes along with a lot of the fasting trends that are coming. And there is some science in that. There is definitely good science around the fasting in animals. It's very hard to do those experiments in humans, as you can imagine, because you have to follow people for 30 or 40 years to see if you've shown a benefit. But the interim, what we call intermediate data, showing that you've influenced some of the pathways that we know definitely are involved in negative pathways in biological aging, then fasting does 
does does have an impact, on, a beneficial impact on those pathways. I do happen to fast myself. I like it because it's my way of controlling things. I like it. But and I don't find it difficult, but some people will definitely find it difficult. My other hat is my, my area of interest is cardiovascular disease and aging. And I run a syncope clinic, which is faints, falls and funny do's. I see a lot of people with low blood pressure conditions and and frankly, they cannot withstand no, fasting, no. obviously. So that's different. So you have to tailor mm. whatever dietary intake you choose. It has to be your choice for your physiology. And I'm sure you'd say as well, any of these things, if you've got a medical condition, a pre-existing medical condition, then you need to speak to your doctor anyway before you start. A hundred percent. You must speak to your doctor. Yeah. So the fasting eight hours isn't bad. I mean, an eight hour fast, if you if you if you eat three, four meals in an eight hour window, that's not too bad. Really interesting um, mice experiment. I can't remember if it was mice or rats. But anyway, where the same amount of food was fed to two groups, one got the food over a 24 hour period, same amount, and the other within an eight hour period. And of course, rats eat everything when you when you leave it in front of them. Those who got it over a 24 hour period became obese, whereas those who curtailed it to an eight hour period didn't. So there's something in in um, maintaining an eight hour period if possible. The, the do I do I have a big breakfast and then, you know, smaller meals during the day, etc. Or do I fast in the morning and use the nighttime for my for my 16 hour fast and just start at 12 or one o'clock? That's depending on you. You have to make that that call. Now, there was a lovely study in Newcastle by Roy Taylor's group on diabetics. They reduced calorie intake to 800 kilocals in diabetics. And those who were able to maintain that intake for a year, 50% of them could give up their diabetic Mm. drugs. That's got to be worth it, hasn't it? That's unbelievable. Mm. So there's an awful lot to be said for that. And if you think about the way, again, I come back to evolution because that's what we are. We have evolved. If you think about the way we've evolved, we've evolved with periods of starvation Mm. coupled less frequently with periods of excess because when you got a kill you got you got to you know a buried area in the forest you just scoffed everything mm. down you possibly mm. could because you knew there was going to be a period of starvation so so we've evolved to be accustomed to that so it's not surprising i think that fasting would be um would be something that people could do but it's not necessary and it's not for everyone Mm. And there'll be periods of your life where it's easier and other times where it's more difficult to do that as well, yeah. won't it? So mm-hmm. um, I'm finally, because I'm running out of time with you, sadly, but uh, this is from Helen Hammond. It's a good question, this actually. And I have seen studies or I've seen documentaries about this. Should we eat less as we get older? So it's very interesting. There's a U-shaped association between healthy longevity and age and uh, uh, as we get older and by which i mean probably late 70s 80s you're better off if you have a bit of weight on actually than than thin now that mightn't necessarily be related to intake it could well be metabolism that's changing for some but generally speaking if you're looking at bmi there's that sort of a relationship you know high bmi not a good thing generally in 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 adult life childhood of course but but as you get older there's an inverse relationship uh, there and it's not quite so i can look forward to becoming a podgy 80 year old is that what you can enjoy being podgy (laughs) 
Yeah. Um, so much, uh, so much more that we could talk. Maybe we should have a kind of a regroup in six months' time and do another part <laughs> of the book. But um, it is yeah. just a fascinating area, and Thank it you. feels like so much is going to kind of come at us in the next few years from studies like yes. yours and other studies that are yes. going on around the world. And um, we just don't want to live longer, happier, healthier lives, don't we? As is the title yes. of your book. So. Uh, thank you so much Roseanne it's been absolutely fascinating thank you Gabby I've enjoyed it thank you so much to digest there from Professor Rose Ann Kenny and I am so grateful that she came on and broke down the science for us I'm going to repeat her mantra variety in your plate and variety in your life to anybody who will listen to it and if you want to know more and believe me there is so much more to know grab a copy of her book Age Proof The New Science of Living a Longer and Healthier Life and she's so relatable you could hear that there when she's chatting and the book is like that too or you can listen to Roseanne's gorgeous Irish tones deliver the audio version as my husband Kenny did thank you for joining me today and thank you as always to Spiritland Productions for helping put this episode together I'll catch you next time 